Hello, my name is Dwayne Spearman, and this is Directional Bible Ministries, a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Uh, today is actually September the 12th, but I am recording this for the 13th, as that I will be away uh, Sunday morning. So, uh, today we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts, chapter number 18. Last time we were together, uh, we actually got down through 18.8. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and look there. This is where we ended last time. Let's go ahead and say a word of prayer and we'll get into the word. Father, we love you. Ask that you go before us. Bless the reading of your word. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand the things that you have for us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as, you, as we have been studying through the book of Acts, chapter number 18, we see here that Paul is in Corinth. Um, he had left Athens where he was meeting uh, with the philosophers, the Epicureans, and the Stoics there in regards to the unknown God. Now he's in Corinth. He catches up with Aquila and Priscilla, um, and they begin to work together since they were tent makers. And in his spare time, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuading the, both the Jews and the Greeks. Um, and then Silas and Timotheus catches up with him from Macedonia. And Paul is at this time particularly pressed in the spirit to testify to the Jews that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And of course, these were unbelieving Jews that had not accepted the kingdom gospel, the kingdom message. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, so they rejected Paul's message. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. He shook his raiment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And of course, uh, that doesn't mean Paul abandoned the Jew from that point forward. It just means in Corinth, um, he, he, he left the synagogue and decided to go and minister to the, to the Gentiles outside the synagogue. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house, and many Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Um, Justice was a Gentile that apparently worshipped God, uh, but apparently had not converted to Judaism. In other words, he had not become a, a, a Jew, a proselyte. Um, and he believed the message. So he was indeed um, born again. Not born again, but... Um, I, I got to be careful with that word born again, because I, I am beginning to think I am almost convinced that born again has to do with the nation of Israel, not with the body of Christ, but we'll go into that later. I don't mean to confuse you there, but, uh, um, either way he was, he was converted and I believe he responded to a, to the gospel of grace that Paul was teaching. Uh, and I'll address that issue on, on the issue of born again, whether or not that applies to the body of Christ or whether or not it applies to um, the nation of Israel. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things in my vocabulary that I've had to alter. Um, you know, I mean, terms like um, whether or not we're redeemed or not. Is God redeeming the nation of Israel, redeeming mankind? Um, no doubt. I mean, he's bought us back. 
You know, but it's a word that you got to be careful with in the context in which it's being used. And I'm not ready to be dogmatic about that at all. I'm just telling you my personal journey and those of you that have been following along with me, terms like the body of uh, the bride of Christ. I've, I've said that for years. I've become convinced the body of Christ has nothing to, I mean, the bride of Christ has nothing to do with the body of Christ. Um, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. The bride of Christ is the nation of Israel who's betrothed to God. Um, we are not, um, we are not the bride of Christ. Uh, Revelation makes that very clear. But again, those, those are just terms that I've used for so long without thinking about it. Now in my walk, I am beginning to think about those terms. Do those terms really apply, excuse me, to the body of Christ or do they apply to the bride of Christ? Um, so anyway, I don't mean to confuse you. I'm just giving you a little bit of the journey that I've been going on. Uh, either way, uh, justice here is converted. I believe he responds to the gospel of grace that that Paul is teaching and also the chief ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all of his house. And he was also converted. And of course, the, the church of Corinth was born here. Uh, and then notice in verse number nine, then spake the Lord to Paul in the night vision, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace for I am with thee and no man shall set to hurt thee for I have much people in the city. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that Paul was obviously beginning to grow weary and well-doing and needed some encouragement, so much so that only the Lord himself could give the encouragement to Paul that he needed. Uh, he may very well have been at the point of wanting to quit. Um, he needed encouragement. He needed to be reminded that I am with thee. No man will set to hurt thee. No one. I have many people in this city. Um, it reminds me of an old expression that I heard as a young man. Uh, you are immortal until God is through with you. Uh, it's almost like Paul that, that the Lord is saying to Paul, I got this. Uh, no one's going to hurt you. No one. Uh, I am with you. Uh, you're not alone. I have many people in this city. Um, you know, and I, I think we do when the devil begins to beat up on us and he begins to get some victories in our life, we begin to concentrate on him and not on God. We begin to concentrate on the problems instead of the promises. And sometimes, you know, our, 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 we need to lift our eyes to the hills from whence cometh our help. We need to realize that we are God's servants. It is his responsibility to take care of us. And we are indeed immortal until God is through with us. And Paul, God was reminded, the Lord was reminding Paul of this. Now notice in verse number 11, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Apparently the encouragement helped. Um, he stopped running, he dug his heels in, and he stayed for six months. I mean, for a year and six months. Um, remember that... Um, you know, he'd been driven out of Thessalonica, had been driven out of Berea. Now the Jews were stirring up problems here. Um, you know, his whole ministry was kind of a, up to this point, it was kind of hit and run. He'd go in, he'd preach, he'd rile up the Jews, they'd run him out of town. You know, he was growing discouraged. The Lord encouraged him um, and he dug his heels in. It says here he stayed there a year and six months. I don't know why I put there he stayed there six months. He stayed um, a, a year, a year and six months at this point. 
And then notice in verse number 12, uh, and when Galio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, the fact that they were accusing Paul, I'm horrible with typos, aren't I? Uh, the fact that they were accusing Paul of persuading men to worship God contrary to the law makes it pretty clear that Paul was indeed teaching the gospel of grace that did not require the keeping of the law. Had he been teaching the gospel of the kingdom, which required the keeping of the law, he could not have been accused of this. It was clear that the Jews saw Paul's message as contrary to the keeping of the law. Now, some will say the Jews were wrong here. No, they were not wrong here. Uh, Paul was teaching a salvation by grace that did not require a keeping of the law. Paul was 100% correct, and the Jews here were 100% correct. He was not teaching the law. He was not teaching the kingdom gospel. He was not teaching salvation by works. He was teaching salvation apart from works. The very acknowledgement of this fact is a nod to dispensationalism. Now, the word dispensation just means a dispensing. God changes the nod, but his ways of dealing with men have changed. Again, dispensationalists a dispensation is a giving period in redemptive history that God deals with man in a certain way. Certainly, God dealt with man during the age of, in of innocence in Genesis 1 through 3 very differently than he dealt with the man when he pushed him out of the garden. In the dispensation of innocence, man did not know any sin. He was not guilty. He was not aware that he was naked. But once he became aware of his his nakedness, we came into the dispensation of conscience, that word cone science with knowledge. He knew that who he was. He knew that he was naked. He knew that he had sinned. And then, then you move into the dispensation of civil government in Genesis 9 through 11, uh, where God began to lay down uh, to establish government uh, that, you know, people, they couldn't run around and kill each other without being held accountable to a higher power, to the government. And then we go into the time of promises, promise when God came to Abram and made a promise, through thee all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. That was the dispensation of promise. And then we, the law was given. Uh, the law was given in Exodus chapter number 20. And I have here the law carried all the way through the birth of the body of Christ. Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of Paul. Now, years ago, not even a year and a half ago, I would have put Acts chapter 2 here. But now I, I reject that. Acts chapter 2 was still very much under the law. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, was for the nation of Israel, uh, not for the Gentiles. And grace, the age of grace came in. And grace will go through Acts 9 through Philemon. Um, and then after the church is raptured out, some people would say the tribulation is actually a dispensation. I, I wouldn't say that. I think the, the, the tribulation is still back under the law. Uh, and then we go into the kingdom, the kingdom age. Uh, and of course, kingdoms for the Jews. Uh, the, the earthly physical promises are for the Jew. Uh, the heavenly spiritual promises 
are for the body of Christ. There needs to be a distinction made there. So, and again, we see um, another proof text for dispensationalism. Now notice in verse number 14, And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Galileo said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wickedness, O ye Jews, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. Uh, but if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge in such matters. Um, and he drave them from before the judgment seat. So Galileo, was, who was apparently a part of the Roman government, wanted nothing to do with this situation because Paul had obviously not done anything contrary to Roman law. And he says, you know, this has to do with your stuff. I mean, um, I mean, he threw them out from before the judgment seat. And he said, I only deal with matters of wrong and wicked lewdness, anything that violates Roman law. He hasn't done anything like this. Uh, this is all about your stuff. It's the same thing that Pilate uh, tried to persuade the Jews of. You know, I find no wickedness in that. I find no, and he knew that the Jews were moved to envy against him. Uh, Pilate wanted to get rid of him. Pilate didn't want him to die. He didn't see any reason for him to die. And then a last-ditch effort, he offered them Barabbas or Jesus, and they chose Barabbas, which is interesting because Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Jesus had been accused of insurrection, but Barabbas was also a murderer. Jesus had never murdered anyone, and yet they chose an insurrectionist and a murderer over Jesus. Surely Pilate saw that. Surely Pilate knew about that, but he just wanted there to be peace. Um and apparently, um, Galileo here is like, listen, this doesn't have anything to do with Roman law. This is your stuff. You know, go deal with it yourselves. Notice the word. It says that you drave them from the judgment seat. Uh, that is the Bema seat that we refer to. It's not the Bema seat, but it's the same word, Bema. Um, in Second uh, Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the Bema seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. One day, we as believers, we as part of the body of Christ, will stand before a Bema seat, a judgment seat, where we will be judged according to our works, what we have done in this life. Uh, it's not to determine whether or not we're saved, because we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith, and that not of works, lest any man should boast, but we will be rewarded for what we have done. And the Bible speaks very clearly about that. Um, so just an, an interesting word there. And then notice in verse number 17, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, and Galileo cared for none of those things. Now that's kind of interesting, because only the King James Version says, And all of the Greeks took Sosthenes. Um, the others don't say that. The NAS says, and they took, and they all took hold of Sosthenes. Uh, of course, and they all uh, would appear to be both Jews and Greeks. Um, NIV, same thing, and they all turned on Sosthenes. So only the KJV says, and the Greeks took Sosthenes. So I'm going to go with that. Probably shouldn't say Greeks. They all took Sosthenes, uh, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat, but Galileo didn't care anything about it. Um, and again, that word Greeks there, the reason I'm, I'm leaning with the KJV translators probably shouldn't have put that there, 
is the Greek is Helene, which is referring to non-Jews. Uh, now, if it was referring to Hellenist Jews, um, it would make sense, but it's talking about non-Jews here. So I'm just going to go with uh, that's probably not an accurate uh, translation. Uh, usually when it's talking about uh, Hellenist Jews, it's translated Grecians. Then all the Grecians took Sosthenes. So again, the original just doesn't, I mean, it just doesn't seem that that should be there. Uh, and again, I am, you know, and I've said this before, I, I do prefer the King James version of the Bible. I am what I would call a KJV preferred. It just means I believe that the underlying text of the King James Bible is the best. I believe the majority Masoretic text is the most accurate. And, and unfortunately, only the King James and the New King James come off of that text. Uh, just the New King James compares and contrasts with the other texts that are out there, Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus and all those things. So I am KJV preferred. I do not believe that the King James Bible is inspired. Uh, I believe the original autographs were inspired, but I do not believe that the copies of the autographs are inspired. Um, so there is, you know, things that just don't seem to make sense there. Copyist errors, whatever you want to chalk it up to. Uh, but I am King James preferred. I study out of it. I memorize from it. I teach from it. And, you know, my, my thinking on that, and you don't have to agree with that, and that's fine. I'll still be your friend, um, is that, um, you know, if every year, you know, when I was in the classroom, uh, I would tell my students, I want you to go out and I want you to get this edition of this textbook, understanding that there were previous editions to that textbook, but I want you to get this edition because I want you and me to be reading out of the exact same thing. And yet we come into the church house and everybody's got a different edition. You know, everybody's all over the place. And to me, that just causes confusion. I can't tell you how many Bibles that, but my Bible says, you know, why not just read out of the same one? And why not read out of the one that I deem to be the best? You know, oh, it's hard to understand. No, it's not. Learn English. Um, so, um, Anyway, I mean, that's just my opinion there. I think when the congregation comes together, I mean, ideally, or when the Bible study comes together, ideally, we should all be reading out of the same textbook, same edition. You know, I mean, that's just my opinion. I'm not fighting you over it. Uh, and I'm not fighting King KJV onlyist over it. I mean, I, I, as you see in my notes here, the New American Standard, um, you know, I mean, it's a good translation, but it does not come off of the same text as the King James, neither does the NIV. Uh, they come off what I deem to be inferior text. Um, so, but anyway, that's just my, my opinion, you know, so uh, you could take or leave that. And then the notice that it says that they beat Sosthenes here. Um, Sosthenes uh, is going to appear again in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God in Sosthenes, our brother. So we're assuming this Sosthenes is the same one. Uh, maybe because of this event, he decided to leave the synagogue and, and team up with Paul. 
Well, you know, after being thoroughly beaten before the judgment seat, I, I think that would be a pretty good motivation to walk away uh, from the synagogue <laughs> and start following uh, Paul. Makes sense to me. Uh, then notice in verse number 18, Paul is returning to Antioch. And Paul, after he tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, sailed thence to Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sincrea, for he had a vow. So now Paul apparently uh, stayed in Corinth, even after all that happened. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while. So Paul wasn't scared or run away from Corinth. He tarried there a little while. We're not sure exactly how much longer he stayed. But then he eventually decides he wants to go back to Antioch. And the journey is going to take him through Syria, Sincrea, Ephesus, Caesarea, Jerusalem, and then to Antioch. Um, but notice it says that he had made a vow, having shorn his head. Uh, whatever vow it was that Paul made, it involved cutting his hair, shaving his head. And the only one that is mentioned in the Bible that talks about shaving of the head is the Nazarite vow, which was for a time of dedication to the Lord. Uh, and we see in, in, you know, in Numbers chapter number six, it talks about this Nazarite vow. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, speaking to the children of Israel, and saying to them, when either a man or a woman will separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine, from strong drink. Of course, Samson should be coming to mind right now. He was a Nazarite. To drink no vinegar or wine, vinegar, strong drink, neither shall you drink any liquor or grapes, not even moist grapes or even dried grapes. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels, even to the husk. And all the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled. In the which he separated himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy and shall let the locks of his head grow. And then if you keep studying at the end of the vow, he was to shave his hair and take it to the temple and make sacrifice. So, I mean, we see this vow. It was voluntary. It could be done by either a man or a woman. It had a specific time frame. Uh, it had specific requirements and restrictions. And at its conclusion, a sacrifice was to be offered. However, we're not sure what kind of vow Paul took. It just seems to us like it is a Nazarite vow, and we'll find out that he was determined to go through Jerusalem. Why would he be determined to go through Jerusalem? Maybe to make the sacrifice after he cut his hair. Uh, because in verse number 21, he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. So he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem for some reason. Now notice in verse number 19, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not. And he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that's coming to Jerusalem. But I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So still on his way to Antioch, Paul stops briefly in Ephesus and he, and he goes straight to the synagogue. 
Um, remember in verse 5 that he had left the synagogue in Corinth to go to the Gentiles. Obviously, that was a one-time situation and not a pattern for the rest of his ministry. And we find, as was his custom, he reasoned with the Jews, no doubt, about who Christ was. Uh, that's what he always did. Uh, who was the Christ? Remember back in 17.3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is the Christ. Understand, then, just as today, the Jews did not understand why Christ died. Um, they, you know, they saw him as a failure. He came preaching, no doubt he did miracles, but he's dead, you know, uh, and they didn't understand that. They, they saw, they did not see a suffering servant. They saw a, a, uh, a sovereign servant. They did not see Jesus coming to die. They saw him coming to reign. So there was confusion there. Just like in the church today, they're still confusing over this issue. Uh, the average dispensationalist, the average covenant theologian, the average Christian period will say, Jesus came in the Gospels, offered the kingdom, it was rejected, they killed him, and the church was born in Acts chapter number 2. <laughs> Which means they do not understand what happened. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was near. It was nigh. But he still had to die before the kingdom could be legitimately offered in Acts chapter number 2. And the vast majority of the church misses this. So, like Paul, I and uh, most uh, mid-Acts dispensationalists are now spending our time trying to convince people as to the ministry of Christ. Um, and they obviously wanted to hear more, but he was pressed to keep moving to get to Jerusalem. Um, interesting, again, the King James says that he wanted to get to Jerusalem, while the other translations leave this out. Uh, in Acts 18, 21, uh, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. Uh, the NAS and taking leave of them said, I will return if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. So again, there's a difference between the underlying text. Uh, I believe that the majority of Masoretic text is, this, is the superior text. Um, now the translations, that's a different issue. Uh, but the King James does point out that he wanted to get to Jerusalem for some reason. And I believe it may have very well been to fulfill the Nazarite vow that he had made. Now notice in verse 22, and when he had landed in Caesarea, he went in and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So whatever he did in Jerusalem, it was short. Um, and it could have been that Masoretic vow. And notice it says, and gone up and saluted the church. The word gone up is always a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not geographically always up, but Jerusalem was spiritually up. You're always going up to Jerusalem. You're always going up to Jerusalem. And that's what he said. He said, I went up and I saluted the church. Obviously, he's talking about the church in Jerusalem, that Jewish congregation in Jerusalem. And then upon his return to Antioch, his second missionary journey 
is complete uh, once he gets to Antioch. And then in verse number 23, and having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively. I can tell I'm not reading KJV there. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all of the disciples. Now notice the NAS says he went uh, successively. Um, and the KJV says he went in order, <laughs> um, strengthening all of the churches. Um, so just, you know, again, I think in order is a little more clear than successively, but uh, be that as it may, uh, just as quickly as the second journey ended, the third journey began. Uh, and we do not know how much some time there is. We don't know how long he was in Antioch. Uh, and again, as his custom was, after he finished his first missionary journey, here on his second missionary journey, he's giving a report to the Church of Antioch. They are the ones that sent him out. That becomes very, very important when you study missiology or missions, um, that they are sent out by local churches. Uh, therefore, they're accountable to local churches. Uh, that's why most, uh, that's why I support local church missions over parachurch missions where there is no accountability to a local assembly, but that's another class for another time. And again, his goal was to strengthen all the disciples, just like they did on the second journey. You remember on the second journey in Acts 15, Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch teaching, preaching the word of the Lord. And some days after, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go again and visit our brother in every city where we preached and see how they do. And now he's saying he wants to strengthen all the disciples. So the whole point of his missionary journeys, you know, his first journey was when he went up and he founded all these churches. His second missionary journey was to go and encourage all these churches. And his third missionary journey is to go back and strengthen them again. Uh, he was indeed, he had the heart of a pastor. He wanted to strengthen these churches. And then we get down into verse number 24, and a certain Jew named Apollos, Apollos, born at Alexandra, an eloquent man in mighty and scriptures, came to Ephesus. Um, now we're introduced to Apollos from Alexandria. Again, remember that Luke is writing this. And notice it says that Apollos was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. Now, the word eloquent means literally fluent. He was a fluent orator, which means he spoke well of, of the knowledge that he had um, because he was mighty in scriptures. Uh, so not only was he mighty in the scriptures, but he had the ability to share that knowledge in a very understandable way. And believe me, that is a gift that not all men possess. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, he had the ability not only to understand it, but he had the ability to share it. Um, I've invited people, I've sat and listened to people who were great with the pen, but not very good with the tongue, uh, who have written unbelievable textbooks, who have written unbelievable uh you know, books on missions or whatever have you. And just, they're very eloquent with the pen. But when you talk to them in person, they're not very eloquent with uh, the tongue. Um, 
they're not able to speak in such a way that is fluent. Um, so it takes practice. It, it takes a gift to do that. You know, when I was in Bible college, uh, we actually had to take a pulpiteering class, uh, which I remember back then being young and dumb. Uh, I kind of mocked it because to me, it felt like they were teaching us to be robots. But as I look back on that now, and I watch young people speak today and, you know, they're scratching their face and clicking their pen and playing with their fingernails and rolling their ties. Uh, they can't stand still in, in, the, in the podium. I think that pulpiteering class was good because we would be given a text and we'd, that we'd be placed in a booth and we'd be recorded for about 15 minutes and then we would be critiqued on that. And they would point out our, 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 our voice inflection, whether or not we were just screaming or whether or not we were too soft, uh, whether or not we had these nervous tics, uh, like uh, words like, 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 like. You ever listen to someone and every other word is like? Um, those are annoying. <laughs> those, <laughs> that is not fluent. You know, that is not a good orator. Uh, saying things like, okay. 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 You know, and a lot of speakers do that. And I know what they're trying to do. I did it. Uh, one time after a sermon, I preached one time, I asked my wife, how was it? And she said, it was okay. And then later on, she said, she showed me a little note thing and she had put a, uh, a little hash for every single time I said the word, okay. And I said it, I said it 81 times. Um, so we all, um, 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 you know, I mean, so the purpose of the class was teach us how to present ourselves in a podium. And I think it was good. Um, then notice verse number 25. This man was instructed, speaking of Apollos, in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. This just means that he did not know the grace gospel that had been given to Paul yet. He did not understand the Pauline theology at this point. He was a kingdom believer, uh, he was just not fully aware of the mystery that had been given to Paul. Uh, that's what that means. Um, he, he, he was instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent. He was diligent. But the only thing he knew was the baptism of John. And again, it just means that he didn't know the grace gospel. He was a kingdom believer. He didn't understand the mystery yet. And then verse 26, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And of course, you know what he was preaching, kingdom gospel, of course. Whom when Aquila and Priscilla heard that, they said unto him and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So after Aquila and Priscilla heard him speak in the synagogue, they pulled him to the side. They brought him up to speed in regards to what God had been doing through Paul's life and his ministry so that he would understand the way of God more perfectly or more exactly. And then in verse 27, and when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, in other words, when Paul, when Apollos felt the Lord wanted him to go through Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive Apollos who when he was come helped them also, which had believed through grace. So now Apollos was not only fluent in the kingdom gospel, but he was more so and more appropriately so fluent in the grace gospel. So he was 
fully informed in regards to Pauline theology. And he shared that with the brethren in Achaia. So Apollos was now more prepared to rightly divide law and grace, the kingdom gospel, and the grace gospel. I found in my ministry that this ability changes everything. When you understand the difference between the kingdom gospel and the grace gospel, and there are people that will fight tooth and nail. I still love them. I still respect them that say there is no difference at all. But I, I just, I can't see that. Once you do begin to understand that, when you understand that the 12, including Matthias, was teaching the kingdom gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Hebrews through Revelation, that it's all kingdom gospel. It's written to the nation of Israel, not to the body of Christ. And when you sit down and you compare James now to what Paul said, there's no contradiction. Paul was talking to the body of Christ. James was talking to the nation of Israel. Paul is talking about the gospel of grace. James is talking about the kingdom gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. I mean, it begins to make sense. I believe that I now more, how shall I say, I more perfectly understand uh, than I used to. Uh, I understand that. Um, I understand when I go to, look over here, when I go to, um, when, I, when I look in my New Testament and I get down to the book of Hebrews, I understand that the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. I'm not a Hebrew. I never will be a Hebrew. It was not written to me. It was written to the Hebrews. Therefore, it's going to be dealing with the law. When I get down into James, I understand more perfectly now that James was written to the 12 tribes of Israel about the kingdom, about the soon tribulation that they believed was coming and the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom. It's all law. I understand more perfectly now, just like, just like Apollos did. Um, and I would encourage you to do the same. Um, and then notice uh, that it says in verse number 28, for he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was indeed the Christ. I mean, Apollos apparently became a very popular preacher uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.12. And this I say that every one of you saith, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good lineup that Apollos found himself in. And of course, in Corinthians, who's he talking to? You know, he, he's talking to the church. He's talking to the body of Christ. Uh, so Apollos made a name for himself after he more perfectly understood uh, the difference between the two gospels. For he mightily convinced the Jews and publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Now, again, we are in a time of overlap in the book of Acts. Acts has to be viewed as a book of transition from Peter to Paul, from Jerusalem to Antioch, from the kingdom gospel to the grace gospel, uh, from the Jerusalem church to the, to the Antioch church, Jew to Gentile. Acts has to be viewed as a transition. And as such, there is a time of overlap there where the kingdom of God, where the kingdom gospel and the grace gospel are being preached at the same time. One to the nation of Israel, one to 
the Gentiles. Uh, one to the believing Jews, the other to the non-believing Jews. Um, and again, it's hard. I, I wish there was a line uh, that said, from this point forward, this is what's going on. And that's why we have to rightly divide the word of truth. We're not separating error from truth. We're separating truth from truth. And as such, there's disagreements. Um, you know, for example, I believe that Paul, for I know that Paul, I believe that Paul from Acts 9 until he received the mystery, he was preaching a kingdom gospel. And I believe that it was later when he received the mystery that he was converted and became the first member of the body of Christ. Now, unfortunately, we can't draw a hard line as to where exactly that happened and what Paul said and didn't say and when he said it. We're not sure. I, I, wish, I wish we could draw hard lines, but we, we can't. Uh, but today... That's not the case. We should not be preaching the kingdom gospel. We should not, from our pulpits, be saying, repent and be baptized. Okay? Uh, repent and be baptized was the kingdom gospel. It was a works gospel. It was for the nation of Israel. Instead, we need to be emphatically saying, believe and thou shalt be saved. Believe what? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we should be preaching. But instead, what we do today is we say, repent, be baptized, and believe. We are meshing kingdom with grace. And it's no gospel at all, according to Paul, to the Galatians. Um, so anyway, it, it, it does get difficult. And for those of you that are joining late in the game here, uh, it takes, I mean, one question one answer leads to another question. <laughs> uh, that's, that's all it leads to. So, but anyway, we need to understand. Um, I, I made this one final note. Why is it so important for Apollos to understand the difference? Because one, the kingdom gospel was for the nation of Israel. It was a national salvation. What must we do? Peter said, you need to repent and be baptized, every single one of you. Uh, the kingdom gospel is an individual salvation, not the kingdom gospel. The grace gospel is an individual salvation. It's not a national salvation. One was going away. The kingdom gospel has gone away. It is not preached today. It should not be preached today. It will be preached once the church is raptured during Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation. The other was just coming in. The grace gospel was given to Paul and to Paul alone. And he began to understand. And I do say began to understand. He wasn't just zapped with all of this. He, he came, it was from revelation to revelation. He began to understand that the kingdom had been postponed. The nation of Israel had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and was now being set aside. And the body of Christ was the focus. Um, one would no one one would no longer one would no longer eventually be effective. The kingdom gospel is no longer effective today. It is a works gospel. If you're responding to a works gospel, you're not saved. While the other will last into the rapture. So Paul's grace gospel will be preached until the rapture of the church. So. Anyway, that's what we covered uh, Tuesday through Friday of last week. 
again, I hope you're being blessed by these things. I hope you're being challenged by these things. I encourage you to share this with friends and family and, and study them for yourself and see if these things be so. Share. Let other people know about this ministry. Uh, the more people we reach, you know, I believe the more effective we'll be. Our world, uh, November the 3rd, is not what it's about. Uh, it's about the grace gospel. It's about preaching, giving Christ to a lost and dying world. This world does not need a political revival. This world needs a spiritual awakening. And that's only going to come and only promised through the teaching of the word of God. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Remember, God loves you, wants the best for you, and he's working all things out for your good. See you Tuesday morning, um, 6.30 a.m.